Welcome back, nerds and geeks across the world, to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. We're excited you decided to join us again for this trip through the nerd multiverse. This week, we will continue our attempt to fix Star Wars with an up-close look at Star Wars The Force Awakens. But first, it's time for, you guessed it... Chris, what's happening in the nerd world? Well, Netflix just finished up their five-day virtual event, Geeked Week, in which they released trailers for upcoming shows, dropped bite-sized morsels for future projects, and made earth-shattering announcements for all new shows. Jacob Siegel at BGR has a great and extensive list of the details that are revealed during this event, but here are a few of the highlights. The first official teaser for Masters of the Universe Revelation was revealed. Aw, Yeah. Easy there, Dave. Calm down, man. (laughs) A 13-second teaser for the second season of The Witcher was released, focusing particularly on an aged-up, trained-up Cirilla. In addition, Netflix will be teaming up with the series developer, CD Projekt Red, for the inaugural WitcherCon on July 9th. Easy there, Chris. Calm down, man. (laughs) While the popular anime series Castlevania recently released its fourth and final season... It was revealed that there will officially be a spin-off series that takes place in France during the events of the French Revolution. Friend of the show, Zack Snyder, is developing a new animated series for Netflix titled Twilight of the Gods, focusing on Norse mythology. The series will feature an incredible voice cast, including John Noble as Odin. Fringe fans rejoice. Dave, what are you most geeked about? See what I did there? Is that is that even like a question? I mean, there's obviously a lot to get hyped for about, you know, this Geeked Week. Uh, And I'm quite interested to see what Netflix does with a whole uh, host of different things. You know, Um, R.L. Stein's Fear Street is getting adapted. I'm always in for anything horror, even if it's, you know, aimed at sort of a young adult audience. And there was a first look at Sandman featuring uh, Neil Gaiman visiting the set, uh, which looks really dope and Sandman is such a seminal work that seeing that adapted in any way shape or form is almost mind-blowing to me at this point but you guessed it the main attraction for me was the trailer for Masters of the Universe Revelation the animation looks so good the character designs feel true to form the action looks great and hearing Mark Hamill as Skeletor that gave me a serious case of the nerdgasm Chris You know, if there's one thing Netflix is doing for my nerdy little heart right now, it's continuing the story of the original Masters of the Universe cartoon, while tweaking it, obviously, for modern sensibilities. This right here could be a future nerdy winner if it lives up to the trailer, Chris. Not to mention a fantastic use of uh, the song Hero. Uh, It was just a perfect song choice. Oh, yeah, Um, totally got me pumped. (laughs) um, Yeah, so... I mean, it's it's no surprise. Uh, I kind of told on myself, but the whole all of the Witcher stuff and I uh, only got 13 seconds. What the crap? But um, as I'll talk about much more in in my, um, you know, nerd commendation, hint, hint, um, that little glimpse of the character of Siri, like the, her true potential unlock now that she's no longer on the run. Uh it's it's so exciting and I'm, I'm so stoked there i mean witcher con are you kidding me um also another one that completely flew under my radar that i'm super stoked for is uh gunpowder milkshake which gives like definite vibes of something like kill bill or, or something like that and 
like the cast on that is just out of this world, including some individuals that I have like deified. Michelle Yeoh, uh, Angela Bassett, Karen Gillan is amazing. Uh, just about like this assassin that's on the run, saving this little girl. Uh, it, it, so Gunpowder Milkshake, uh, in addition to The Witcher Season 2, are the ones that I am most geeked about. Yeah, there's a lot to be hyped about from uh, from this geeked con. I'm, I'm ready for it, man. All right, Dave, what is on the news desk for you? Well, you know, uh, I've talked a lot about Vertigo, uh, a DC label for mature and experimental titles that I absolutely adored. Uh, it's now a defunct label, regrettably, but its output included stuff like Sandman, Hellblazer, and Unwritten, just to name a few. My all-time favorite Vertigo title, though, was Fables. Uh, the comic series ran for 150 issues, had several spin-offs and miniseries, and ended roughly six years ago. Fables followed uh, fairy tale characters escaping and living in the real world, all while yearning to return to the world they had been driven from. The story was mature, clever, and really put fascinating spins on the fairy tales of old. And the art was stunning as well. So here's the news bit. Fables is coming back. In September, DC will be releasing Batman, Wolf and Gotham, a six-issue miniseries that crosses Batman over with Big B Wolf, the big bad wolf of the Fable series. And then next May, a new 12-issue arc, picking up with Fables number 151, will bring the main series back in earnest under DC's new black label for mature readers. The project sees the return of writer Bill Willingham and artist Mark Buckingham. And in the age of never-ending ones, I think it's pretty refreshing that they decided just to resume the numbering with 151. Now, it is supposed to be a jumping-on point for new readers as well. uh, So it should be a return to form for fans as well as a good jumping-on point. You know, I'm psyched about this. I love the entire 150-issue run of Fables. I can't wait to read how the story continues. And you know... I wished with all my nerdy little heart that these returning series that keep popping up would herald the return of the best label in comics. I mean, Vertigo, I miss you. Come back. Yeah, there seems to be uh, a lot of similar sentiment from what I've seen. Um, So, you know, the more I hear you talk about it and the more uh, like titles I see that just happen to be under Vertigo, like Sandman and, uh, you know, Why the Last Man. Another show that I'm super geeked for that is coming very, very soon. Um, it, it really seems like that that uh, I, I'm, I tend to agree with you. Yeah, it definitely needs to come back, man. Uh, Black Label is sort of like DC substitute for Vertigo, and a lot of their mature stuff just falls now under Black Label. But I don't think Black Label has, has really built any kind of reputation for itself yet. Um, so some of the stuff is okay, and some of the stuff is, is, is not all that so vertigo such a great history behind it i don't understand why you would retire a label like that chris my my only hope is that they can kind of recapture that magic i know sometimes you to to borrow the old cliche you can't go home again uh you know for for myself my experience when chris claremont came back to write uh on uncanny x-men it it just wasn't the same you didn't capture that same spark so so here's hoping for you uh and and other you know fables fans that it's that it's a different story this time around absolutely all right that's it for nerd news stick around folks after a short break we will attempt to fix star wars the force awakens don't go anywhere seriously stay Welcome back, nerds and nerdettes. It's time for the main attraction, the big kahuna of nerddom. 
I'm talking, of course, about the Byword's very own. After a three-episode stint trying to fix the Star Wars prequels last year, we are returning once again to the galaxy far, far away. This time, we will attempt to fix the sequel trilogy, consisting of The Force Awakens, The Last Jedi, and The Rise of Skywalker. Part of me fears that this may be a bigger challenge even than the prequels. Chris, what do you think? I think we have, um, for for the first time... One of the first times, at least on the show's history, we have very differing opinions on at least the second movie in this trilogy. Um, So uh, I'll be interested to see our discussion on the next one, not to put the cart before the horse, but um, I didn't have a lot of of overarching issues for The Force Awakens. But, oh, man, to whatever deity we want to invoke the name of, we're going to need all the pantheons of gods for the for the final film in this trilogy. I will totally echo that sentiment. What a mess that one was. How in the world do you even fix that? I don't think we have enough band-aids for that one. <laughs> this is why we're sparsing it out with episodes in between, so we can rega- regain our, our, our uh, stamina, our forces, in, in order to tackle that. that. That's probably the best way to put it. All right, so today we'll be tackling the first movie in the sequel trilogy, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Chris and I each have selected three big fixes we think would improve the movie, and we will take turns discussing those. When we are finished, we'll hit you with a lightning round of smaller changes we think would have further improved the movie. Chris, let's begin. What's your first fix for Star Wars The Force Awakens? I think this is probably the biggest overarching criticism of the film. Uh, It's literally a new hope all over again. Like, it's... It's it's not even like... um like a slight thing it's really heavy-handed i mean you have stop me if you've heard this before you have a droid carrying all important information which could save the universe so to speak um you have a a loner that is you know living on a desert planet you have a a shot to only one sun this time but uh, this the sunset shot um you have a roguishly handsome pilot um, with a leather jacket. Uh, so it, it, you have a, a planet-destroying super weapon. Now, granted, it's on a much bigger scale because you have to do something different, but I, I just felt like there's so many plot points that are like directly copied and pasted and you just up the font size, uh, if you will, on this. So... I think that's its biggest hindrance and and maybe it's because after you know the the reception of the prequels they were like no we can do this you know maybe it was Abrams saying you know I can I can do this guys don't worry so maybe it was catering too much to the original trilogy in in the way that they literally just made another new hope you know, I actually 100% agree with that assessment. Uh, if there is one thing that would need to be fixed, it's, it's literally just the the story because it echoes A New Hope just a little bit too much. It's like you said, you know, you have the, the opening desert planet, a, a orphan living on there, not knowing much about, you know, his slash her family, the super weapon at the end, the droid carrying the, the important message, all of this stuff. Um, and even further than that, the villain dressed in black, wearing a helmet, the shadowy figure behind him controlling him. Uh, it, there's there's too too much callback, and a, a little a little callback, a little tribute occasionally. Um, 
is obviously okay. However, when the movie basically becomes a carbon copy or a near duplicate of a previous movie, that, that's when you start having trouble. And it makes the whole affair just a little boring. And that's sad because tonally, uh, what they did with this movie, I think it was actually spot on. Like tonally, they managed to capture the, the fast-paced fun of the original Star Wars movie. But, and, and I think that's a kind of a mission statement for them at this point. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to say, hey, we know the sequel, the prequels were a little weird, but tonally we can match the original Star Wars. It can feel like Star Wars again. And that's great. I, I think that's very admirable because the, pre, the uh, prequels were a little off from what Star Wars fans were looking for. So tonally, I think this totally landed. But the way they achieved that tone was to just basically say, hey, we're just going to basically remake A New Hope. There was no no reflection there. Like, what made this tone and how can we transplant that in a new story? It was, let's just retell the same story again. And that was a huge misstep for this movie and a, a huge disservice to kick off a, a new trilogy of Star Wars movies with a carbon copy of A New Hope. Yeah, and and, and not to step on my future point, but I mean, it... it... There, I overall really enjoy this film. Like, I, it's it's really fun. Um, I have a good time watching it. It's an enjoyable experience. It just, um, it, it just really kind of hamstrings like any new development or or any kind of newness or or like the new elements. The 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 cast um, is really hamstrung by by something like this. You know, I agree. And this might be something that is is best saved for a later point, but I think even some of the developments in the sequel then still echoed the original trilogy a little too much, you know, with, with, you know, the old wise Jedi that that's off, you know, living as a hermit and the, the young upstart seeking him out and all that. Like there's just, I think across the trilogy, there's too much of this. The Force Awakens is by far the, the biggest offender. But across the trilogy, there's too much of an effort to retell in some way the original trilogy. Yeah, and and for me, I think that's my overarching criticism of the entire trilogy and a lot of Star Wars properties, even something, and I know we touched on this before, something that I adore, like The Mandalorian. They, they really limit themselves storytelling potential-wise when you have a galaxy, an entire galaxy far, far away, you have, you know, all this storytelling potential of, you know, going to different planets and everything. Um, and we're just somehow back on Tatooine or like the same five planets or, you know, to get to, uh, you know, to, to put two carts before the horse, the same two families. It's, it's all just so limiting when you have endless possibilities. Why we keep circling back? Yeah. You know, I, I have to rem- uh, remember something that... Um... Luke said in A New Hope at the beginning when he's talking to C-3PO and uh, C-3PO wants to know what planet they're on and Luke says if there's a bright center to the universe you're on the planet that's furthest from it and I'm like yeah no because apparently Tatooine is like the place where everything happens you know that's where Darth Vader's from that's where Luke Skywalker's from that's where you know uh, Jabba the Hutt is hanging out that's where the big pod races are I mean I think uh, Luke, you're a little, you're a little full of it, my, my friend. You're just a little full of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dave. What is your first fix of the Force Awakens? That's a lot of Fs. I love alliteration, but come on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, here's the thing, Chris. Um, I think the title 
implies something that we never quite got out of this movie. The Force Awakens is promises something to me, and that is that there is some kind of big paradigm-shifting awakening of the Force, not, you know, a, a sole individual on a desert planet starting to get, you know, some kind of sense of the Force. Um, when you're talking about the Force Awakening rather than, like, Ray's Awakening, I pictured, you know, in the in the initial announcement of the title and that first little teaser trailer, what I really pictured is something where, you know, evil has, is, like, running rampant and suddenly all these individuals across the galaxy start, you know, becoming incredibly powerful in the Force. Like, the, the light side of the Force is, like, powering up a, a Jedi army or something. You know, like a real awakening where you have multiple new characters who all are trying to, you know, seek out training, try to become, you know, one with the Force. Uh, you have, um, you know, the potential for some of those people as the Force awakens to become, you know, light Jedis. You have some that become dark Sith. You know, there are people that are good. There are people that are bad. There's just this this explosion in Force sensitivity. And then you have a very different kind of story immediately it's not a retread of a new hope because you have a cast of characters a larger cast of characters all seeking um connection uh with the force and and learning how to use it and some fall under you know influence of of good and some fall under influence of evil and it and it sets up a whole different a kind of movie dynamic so when i finally sat down in the theater then and i watched it and it was literally just uh, orphan on desert plan- planet uh, starts getting force sense uh, force training. It kind of just blew my mind that this is just a new hope all over again. What I really wanted was something at a much larger scale. You said the force awakens, not not Ray awakens. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a misnomer <clears throat> for so many reasons. Now, I will say that <clears throat> for so many, like the two scenes that stand out and made me think of something like the Force Awakens were two of my favorite scenes in the film, uh, namely when she touches the lightsaber in Takodana and, and all of that happens. And then in, in the snowy forest where she summons the lightsaber, those were super powerful moments, but I still feel, and, and I think that's why they were going for the force awakens for two scenes like that. But I still feel like it's a misnomer. Like this is Ray's story. This is not like something like the force, like an overarching macro thing. I think it's a very micro detail. So I just think it's, um, a, a misnomer and a, and, and a better title could have been chosen. Yeah, but but see, my fix to this, Chris, is not pick a better title. My fix to this is fulfill the promise that the title actually makes. You know, uh, you know, you wrote the check, now cash it. The Force Awakens implies something. Do something with that. If nothing else, it would make a, a significantly different movie than A New Hope, and that would have been and that would have been to great service of this film. Yeah, and, and I totally agree. Not to step on your next point, which I wholeheartedly agree with as well. Um, but you know, exactly. If if this is more than just one individual story, like this is something different that we haven't seen before, and that's just so the promise of that, the prospect of that, is so exciting to me. And then just to see it watered down into into something that we've seen before is just so disheartening. It's like the wind being taken out of your sails. Yes, that's exactly right, Chris. All right, so what what would be your second fix for Star Wars The Force Awakens? 
Okay, and and I'm I know that I'm I'm going again with um you know a popular critique of the film, but Captain Freaking Phasma, like come on, like it was billed as like this character that was like a Boba Fett esque, and like they have unique armor like nobody else has, super stands out, an awesome cape. Gwendolyn Christie is an amazing actress. Like you know, my Brienne of Tarth fans stand up. Like, oh, man. So it was just so underwhelming to see her in two scenes and immediately get foiled. This big, bad character gets sent into a trash compactor, you know, with like an an, an old Han Solo, geriatric Han Solo. And, you know, Finn, who has not come into his full fruition yet, he's still you know, so overwhelmed by, you know, action. And, and I absolutely adore the character of Finn, but you cannot convince me, um, sorry, shouts to Chewie, but like, it's just so underwhelming that this amazing character that they really planned out and it was just so underwhelming. And I feel like that's what so much of this, it's, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of so much of this franchise, uh, the sequel trilogy, at least, uh, maybe even the franchises. It's this amazing promise that never pays off. So, I, I need more Captain Phasma. Like, if you're going to sell me on this character, you should really give them some room to breathe and, and to be the awesome character that you told me they were. And I believe that they were. So I, I need more Captain Phasma. And I'm super excited. I'm a huge Gwendolyn Christie fan. I'm super excited that she's playing Lucifer in the Sandman, another plug for Sandman. Uh, so, But I need more Captain Phasma in this film. So, you know, when, when the, the marketing started revving up for The Force Awakens and we started seeing more and more of Captain Phasma, you're exactly right. There were <clears throat> comparisons being made to Boba Fett. You know, if we were ever to sit down and try to fix the original trilogy, what a sacrilege that might be. Um, I think one of the things that obviously needed to be fixed in the original trilogy is, is Boba Fett. Boba Fett was a character with so much promise used fairly well in Empire Strikes Back, just simply not enough, and then unceremoniously dumped in the opening of Return of the Jedi in one of the absolutely most ridiculous death scenes for a character that's supposed to be as bad as he is um, ever, probably. Wholeheartedly agree. Wholeheartedly. Yeah, so then we have Captain Phasma, and everybody's like, oh, she gives us shades of Boba Fett, this cool armor, this mysterious character... And then they Boba Fett it, Captain Phasma, <laughs> exactly the way George Lucas Boba uh, not Fett it. That Boba kind of, not that kind of Boba Fett treatment, damn it! <laughs> That's not what we wanted, right? We wanted, again, you hope that filmmakers learn from the past and say, okay, this is a mistake the franchise made. They really didn't use Boba Fett to his full potential. Here we have a character that has shades of Boba Fett. Let's show them how it's actually done and really do something neat with Captain and Phasma. I was very disappointed with how all this shook out. Um, she was completely ineffectual in this movie. Like, like completely uh, a footnote. And then how she met her end then in The Last Jedi was just exactly the same kind of thing as Boba Fett. It was just this really disappointing moment that even didn't do a very good job serving the overall story. I think out of all of the characters that have gotten sort of a, a raw deal in this trilogy, and there are plenty. I, I think Phasmus is probably the most egregious. So much potential, so much great storytelling potential, so completely wasted. 
You could also say, see also Mace Windu. Oh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, it, it's just, it blows my mind how it, like, it's just repeating the same errors, like you said. Like, you, you wish you'd learn something, but it, it, let's, let's take all the things that, oh, man, it, it, it's just so frustrating. And look, I think one of the things we need to talk about at this point where we're talking about, you know, characters being wasted is... The, the history of Star Wars as an expanded universe. Because one of the things you note is that um, the original Star Wars movies were made, and then for many years there was basically nothing. There were no movies, there were no TV shows, there was nothing. And Star Wars lived essentially in, an, in this expanded universe of books. And one of the things that the authors of those books did, besides trying to further the story and, and move it beyond Return of the Jedi, is they picked out little things in the original trilogy, background characters and stuff, and expanded on those and and created some really interesting books and, and, and short stories and all of that. And one of the things that I noticed about the sequel trilogy, and The Force Awakens is definitely a great example of this, is that they were basically trying to artificially create the same situation where they would introduce fascinating, interesting background stuff but never really use it in the movies and then have, you know, a couple of months later, a book comes out that's called Phasma. And here's the novelization that gives you the background of these characters. And what happens then is that the movie begins to feel not like a coherent story. It begins to feel like an extended advertisement for all this other extraneous media that you have to get to get the rest of the story. And, and that, I think, you know, the prequel trilogy did some of that by, you know, filling in the gaps between the movies. But I think the sequel trilogy is the first time that Star Wars literally was trying to use expanded media to fill the in the blanks within the movies themselves. And at that point, the movies are not coherent and, and you really lose something in the movie going experience. Yeah, for sure. And it's just such a, it's such a disservice and it's just such a source of, of frustration when and and you know for for you know completionist nerds like you and i are we're gonna read those but like to to you know the gen pop if you will like it, it, there's so much loss they're they're not gonna seek out things like that so it, it's just you're you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot exactly i should not have to go and buy you know five different novels just to get a full picture of what the force awakens is all about all right, Dave, what is your second fix for The Force Awakens? I think this one uh, you and I are going to very strongly agree on. It's uh, it's probably one of the number one criticisms of the sequel trilogy in general, but I really think it begins here with The Force Awakens, and that is the mistreatment of the character of Finn. I think Finn was the thing about the initial marketing that fascinated me the most. The idea of a stormtrooper who basically defects and changes sides um, is an absolutely fascinating setup. And yet, they never really did much with that setup. And to me, the best way to create a real long-term three-movie fascinating arc for Finn is to make him Force-sensitive. What could be a more interesting arc than a stormtrooper defecting and then getting Jedi training and becoming a Jedi? That, that actually fixes 
you know, a lot of stuff about my first point as well. I mean, if you're having more than one person that we're focusing on that are both force sensitive, then already it feels more like an awakening of, you know, the force and not just an awakening of the ray. Um, so Finn spends a lot of time in this movie and even in the marketing and on posters and everything, waving around a lightsaber. At one point, he's trying to take on Kylo Ren with a lightsaber. Uh, he fights, you know, another stormtrooper with a lightsaber. Like, it's like something is being hinted at here. And although the the focus of the force powers and all that is very, very clearly on Ray in this first movie, it felt like there was at least a seed of development that, hey, Finn is going to be on this same voyage with Ray. Uh, they're both going to seek out training. They're both going to become Jedi. Um, and in fact, maybe very different Jedi. You know, one of the things that I liked about the old expanded universe when, you know, we got to the point where Luke Skywalker started a, a Jedi Academy is that some Jedi had a natural tendency towards certain skills, you know, more than others. So some were naturals at, at healing and other words, others were more natural at, at fighting. And, you know, these two Jedi could have been two very different Jedi requiring different kind of training and giving Luke in the next movie a very different challenge, which is he has these two very different individuals who are both force sensitive and who need very different kind of training. So, you know, even like the, the whole thing of him defecting would be so interesting if you made it a moment where he connects with the force and that is what helps him overcome his conditioning. Because other than that, like if, if it's that easy to shake off a stormtrooper's conditioning and just say, okay, uh, we, I had action one time and had to shoot some people and now suddenly I just don't want to be here anymore. Why isn't the idea of stormtrooper defections more common in the Star Wars universe? I mean, through all of these these movies and books and television series, the idea of straight up a stormtrooper defecting is not very common. So if you make him force sensitive, it even helps explain that a little bit. So, you know, Finn was just completely misserved in this chris yeah <clears throat> and and upon the, this this viewing that i did in preparation for for this episode far and away underlined and and wrote in sharpie that that finn is my favorite aspect of this film i got strong peter parker vibes in his like first year as spider-man um, you know, ultimate, if you will, like he is completely over his skis in this movie, but he is just trying to do like the next right thing. He like just charges headlong into battle, knowing that he is completely terrified of, of, you know, violence and action and fighting, but he does it because he, he's made fast friends and the immediate connection that he felt with Ray, like there's something there. And that's another cart for the horse. Um, you know, criticism that I have is like, uh, I, I think it is completely clear that that Finn and Ray and it is wholeheartedly behind Daisy Ridley and John Boyega's chemistry on screen, and that is so underserved in this that that uh, I just I want better for Finn. Like Finn deserves better. He is such an admirable character in that he is so overwhelmed by the grand scale of this. He lies or misleads the entire resistance about his position as a stormtrooper, when in reality he worked in sanitation, but he did so just because he wanted to save Ray. And he's like, well, figure out the rest when they're there. Tell me that doesn't sound like a Peter Parker storyline. 
Yeah, it sounds very much like that. I totally agree with that. And he is by far the most intriguing character in this because he has uh, the makings of probably the most interesting arc. A lot of a lot of what's going on with Ray in this movie feels a little bit like going through the motions, like duplicating Luke Skywalker's initial journey. But but Finn Finn feels fresh, raw, and and fascinating. There, 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 there's a reason why so many people thought she was a Skywalker for so long. Yeah, because it's basically an exact duplicate of Skywalker's journey. But again, you know, by throwing Finn into the mix as, you know, another maybe different kind of Jedi, we have we have a very, very different arc. And that also means that at the end of this one, he doesn't, you know, get left behind. He goes with Rey to find Luke Skywalker. And it means that in the next movie, he is not sidelined into his this, you know, side quest that goes nowhere, but he's right in the middle of the action getting trained. Um, it's it's a very different trilogy if Finn also is Force-sensitive. And I think, to, to touch on that part in particular, I think it's a much more fascinating storytelling potential. And as you said, to to make it distinctly different from any other Star Wars we've seen before. You know, as educators, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are different types of learners. So the idea that, you know, Ray is this prodigious, you know, Jedi or force sensitive individual and, and Finn needs a different type of training or a different type of learning, if you will. I think that's just a fascinating story potential. Like, and, and, you know, like they all have different skills, like, even like, let's say, go on to like, you know, this sounds like some video game or something. You have like specialists, you have snipers, you have, um, you, you know, DPS build characters, you have tank characters. And, and you've seen that in things like Clone Wars and Rebels, where you have like different members of an ensemble. We just we just looked at that with Army of the Dead. Why wouldn't you, you know, be able to do the same thing with Finn and Rey? Like being force sensitive is not this monolithic, you know, feature to where we're all just carbon copies of the same. We just, you know, change like, like you're customizing a character. You just change the appearance of a character. This one's male. This one's female. This one is of this type of alien race. This one's humanoid. Like it should be this vast variation of of what it means to be force sensitive or a Jedi. That's exactly right. And one of the things again, that the expanded universe got extremely right. Um, so sad that we lost some of that stuff. But, you know, again, there was so much potential here, you know, with Finn and Ray both being Force-sensitive, Chris. All right, uh, that brings us to your uh, third and uh, final main uh, improvement or fix for The Force Awakens, Chris. What have you got? Well, and I touched on this earlier, but... And, and I know that I, I seem like this kind of curmudgeon, but um, when it comes to nostalgia, but I think this in this film in particular and so much of this trilogy the nostalgia is much too heavy-handed and it drastically impairs the new elements um you know my favorite things about this film are the new elements that that like are distinctly different from things we've seen before a lot of people like to criticize and or make jokes about kylo ren that he's like this um like overly emotional spoiled kid which in contrast, I I think that that's a fascinating storytelling device, a fascinating character background backstory. Um, because think about like all of the responsibility and all of the expectations that are laid upon his shoulders, being the child of Han Solo and Princess Leia, being the nephew of 
Luke Skywalker, the the last great hope for uh you know the Jedi, uh being the grandson of Darth Vader, all of those you know factors coming in and like you know in some in some cases you know that's kind of like a fork in the road and you can go one way or the other and he went you know down the path of the dark side it was too much and it overwhelmed him into where he doesn't know which way is up and he's like drowning in all these emotions that he feels in the conflicted spirit i think kylo ren is a fascinating character but i i think that he is stifled in a sense in this film with like you know the darth vader the the snoke emperor you know overarching you know homages like there's literally a scene where like we just like almost like slow-mo over the millennium falcon like we've get it we've seen it before yes we love it can we just continue on please um so i i just think that the nostalgia is way too heavy-handed in this film and um you know i'll probably get some pushback on that by by people who love stuff like that and but but i think it just like in this case it 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 impairs the storytelling potential and the new direction of this franchise you know i can agree with that to a certain extent i think there are very clearly things going on here that are way too nostalgia driven uh from you know the the continuing recurrence of you know desert planet super weapon blah 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 um to even what what's going on with some of the characters um like, did we really need, for example, Han Solo to go ahead and essentially leave his his wife and and go smuggling again when she's trying to run a resistance? Like, that's like that's some tone deaf stuff. Like, our son turned to the dark side, and I'm just going to go ahead and run off with my hairy best friend and go smuggling again, um, which, which seems so completely um, a, a reversal of any kind of character development that he's he went through in the original trilogy. But hey, you know, it's Han Solo; he must be smuggling. Um, so yeah, I, I agree that nostalgia is a, a problem to a certain extent, um, in, in this movie and in the trilogy in general. Uh, but I will also say that there are a couple of nostalgic beats that they should have hit that they didn't hit. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the lightning round. Um, but there was, there, there is too much nostalgia here and it's the wrong kind of nostalgia. Um, there are things you can do within a brand new story that still, you know, pay homage to a certain extent to the past while still moving forward and, and treading new ground. Uh, but this is just a retread in a lot of ways. And and I'm the, you know, an, a huge, massive fan of Harrison Ford. Like I, I idolize him, but like having, and I think one of the limitations and one of the things that made me uncomfortable is like you said, putting him back in, the role of a smuggler having this like what is he like 73 now uh he's in his 70s and and having him run around in these action set pieces like it, it just made me uncomfortable like like it felt like my grandfather like was you know doing something that that was detrimental to his health and i just wanted to be like no grandpa sit down please so i i think putting him alongside leia or serving the resistance in in some kind of capacity that was you know, not running from wrath tars. It's just a little bit hard to believe that 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 uh, a person of that age could be running from wrath tars when Finn and and Ray can't even escape them. Um, so it, it, it just, I think it was a little bit tone deaf, as you said. But um, yeah, so and like I said, it's just it's just incredibly limiting, and it, it kind of felt like you know going to see like 
a, a band that was was big like 40 years ago and they're just playing the same old songs which it's, it's nice and, and you know this kind of lends itself to the it's a new hope all over again like remember when we made good star wars movies here's just the same old song so I, it, it was just too, a, a little too heavy-handed for me yeah i can agree with that all right dave what is your um final big fix of the force awakens so this is going to sound a little odd, so bear with me for a second. I'm, I'm going to put on my old Expanded Universe hat for a moment. One of the most fascinating things that happened to storytelling in the Star Wars novelizations post-Return of the Jedi was that the nature of the conflict between the Empire and the Rebellion had to change. The Empire had basically been broken. The Rebellion had to transform itself into a, a government. Uh, into the new republic and the empire basically became um, what the rebellion was before that an uprising a a remnant that is constantly coming you know jumping out of the shadows and and attacking this new republic and and trying to overthrow it what you have in the original star wars um, trilogy is is in a lot of ways uh, sort of a a examination of a a World War II situation, right? You have this, this you know, quasi-fascist government and you have re- a rebellion against a trying to overthrow it. I get all that. But then we get to the sequel trilogy and The Force Awakens is tying itself in knots to try to make the good guys the underdogs again. Even though, hey, there's a new republic but we're going to go ahead and we're going to blow up the capital planet and then never mention that there's a new Republic ever again, because apparently the entire Republic was just focused on this one planet. And Leia has to go off and, and create a new rebellion, but we'll call it resistance. I mean, they're both R words, but we can call it something a little different. Um, it just, it feels like the force awakens is tying itself into a pretzel, trying to recreate the good guys are the underdogs fighting against a tyrannical government. And that, that creates some problems. The first of these is that it completely renders the end of the original trilogy useless. If you're, you know, they won, they destroyed the Empire. And yet, in the next movie, the Empire is basically back. There, there, is, no, there is no victory out of Return of the Jedi. There is no, we've broken the Empire. And and that's 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 bad, man. That's bad storytelling. You should be building on top of what came before, not trying to undo it in order to create the same kind of story. Wouldn't it have been absolutely fascinating to see the good guys operating from position of strength and now having to fight an empire that is basically using the rebellion's own tactics against them moving from planet to planet secret bases jumping out of the shadows raids guerrilla warfare and how do they deal with somebody using their own strategies against them when they are now tied down trying to actually run a government again it's a very different kind of conflict um you know, it, it reminds me of what uh, Timothy Zahn did in uh, the Heir to the Empire trilogy when you had, you know, Grand Admiral Thrawn, this genius military strategist taking over the Imperial Remnant and then trying to use what was left of the Empire to and genius strategies 
to, to basically slowly dismantle the new republic. It's a different kind of conflict and one that is also very interesting. The good guys don't always have to automatically be the underdogs that are constantly on the run. Sometimes the good guys are fighting off the people that don't have you know, as, as many resources. I mean, if, if we learned anything over the last, you know, couple of decades is, you know, the rise of, of, of terrorism, for example. So those sorts of elements in a Star Wars movie create a, a very different kind of star war. So the nature of the First Order, I think, is all wrong. It shouldn't be, you know, the Empire Part 2. It, it should be by its nature, a very different organization that runs very differently and poses a different kind of threat, Chris. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the inherent problems just initially from jumping forward 30 years and, and you have so many things happening off screen. I think it's just another symptom of the same overarching disease, if you will, of just trying to, you know, do play the same old hits. Uh, and and just recapture that. I I if if you wouldn't have arrived at that solution, I I would I would have also said flip it on its head, and you have these terrorist cells, you know, guerrilla using guerrilla tactics. Um, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about the Clone Wars animated series is you basically had that. Um, you had you know, these bounty hunters, you know, serving these organized crime, you know, like, like the huts were these crime syndicates and, you know, the Jedi, there's peacekeeping forces running around kind of stomping out these little, you know, flames that had, had risen up. And I, I think that would have been a much better served kind of using that again here. Um, but just, just going out of their way to like, oh yeah, the new Republic it's just like this 13 second clip that you get and you never hear from them again. It's, it's just like so odd. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it makes everything from the original trilogy feel so very useless and ineffective because it didn't actually cause any kind of seismic change in the galaxy. Everything just reset again. Um, it, it, if you ever sit down and watch episodes one through nine back to back, you know, you have a very clear arc in the prequels, although it may not be very well executed, of the Republic falling apart and the Empire rising. Then you have a very clear arc through the uh, the original trilogy of, uh, you know, Luke Skywalker and the Rebellion taking down the Empire. And then you hit episode seven here, and suddenly it's like, by the way, dude, we didn't actually defeat the Empire. They're still here. It's... It's just such an odd place to start from. It, there's no forward momentum suddenly. It's all just on repeat. All right, Chris, lightning round. Let's talk about some other changes that we could make here. Um, ben slash Kylo knows that Vader turned at the end, right? So he's like heading this whole like soliloquy to Vader's charred mask, but Maybe and maybe it's not public knowledge. We just don't know. Like it's just so weird for him to invoke the spirit of Vader when you know at the end of Return of the Jedi you have Anakin slash Vader turning back towards the light, he, albeit you know a very last ditch effort. So it's just kind of weird for him to like create this whole mythos around it. But but maybe I missed something. Maybe it's not common knowledge that that um, you know the events of the Return of the Jedi took place. You would certainly think that Luke would tell his student and nephew about that. 
But you know, it's also interesting that that never goes anywhere. Like the Vader worship is there in The Force Awakens, and then in the next two movies, it's really never referenced again. Um, This is just another thing that is not serviced by the movies. It's planted and then never referenced again. It's very, very odd. And it it may even be one of those nostalgia plugs that, you know, just were unnecessary. Probably. All right, Dave, first lightning round, what you got? I think the whole movie is too vague. I mean, there are so many things that go unsaid. Now, the nice thing about the original Star Wars movie, you know, A New Hope, is that in that movie, too, a lot of stuff goes unsaid, but it's really background stuff. It is not, you know absolutely necessary to understand the dynamics of what's happening it's pretty straightforward overall there's an evil empire and there is a a rebellion against it but the relationships between you know various players in this are very very unclear like what is the relationship between the first order the new republic and the resistance is the resistance a part of the new republic a splinter group officially funded by the new republic what is the new republic even like how is the first order even you know chipping away at the new republic like the interplay between these three different things is completely left up in the open and then you blow up the new republic and then it's just first order and resistance which is just you know empire and rebellion all over again but the initial setup is so vague and unclear that it's even like Leia's role. Like Leia, was she in the New Republic? Is she a, a member of the government? I mean, she's referred to as general, right? So, is that a general in the New Republic army? Was she that, or is she just a general of the Resistance? Is she the de facto leader of the Resistance, or is there like some kind of group or council that is working together? Like, there is absolutely no clarity. On, on, on any kind of structure or anything here. It's very, very vague to the point where it becomes distracting, Chris. Yeah, especially like, and I get what they're trying to go for. They're trying to go for like fast paced, you know, action and whatnot, but it is just so wild and, and really, you know, upon a second or third viewing, it's just like, what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. Chris, next lightning round point. Uh, Poe should not have been assumed dead for half the movie. I think it's incredibly limiting. Um, you know, one of your, and, and I'll get into this, you know, more, but like he's heralded as one of the new big three. Um, nobody's going to believe that they killed him off in the first 10 minutes of the film. So come on, like you should have, there should have been an additional scene or two of him, like recovering from the crash and like cu- coming back to the resistance somehow. It, it was just incredibly limiting and a misuse of an incredible actor in Oscar Isaac. Yeah, my impression initially was from from what I had read uh, after The Force Awakens came out was that the initial plan was that uh, he was not going to be somehow one of the big three. He was going to actually just die right there and that was it. And then during the production of the movie, they basically decided to change their minds that they wanted to keep the character around to use in the last <clears throat> in the last battle there. And then they really didn't have an arc for him, so they kind of just left him out of half the movie. Which is, again, it's, it's poor writing, poor planning, and, and a disservice to an interesting character. All right, Dave, what is next up in the lightning round for you? Well, again, you know, uh, I think what they did with Luke Skywalker to a certain extent, that he's often hiding, playing hermit, is just like uh, trying to echo the whole Ben Kenobi situation. And I don't think that's really the best way to go here if you want to do a story that's a little different. Um, so to me... I I think Luke should not be missing. Well, let me rephrase that. Luke should be not hiding, but he should be missing in action. It would be much more interesting if he was, 
you know, out there in the galaxy searching for Ben. And he doesn't know, nobody knows, that, that Kylo Ren is actually Ben Solo. So he is, you know, out there running around looking for his nephew. I, I think that would be a better way to get him off the board for this first movie. Yeah, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna morph my final point into this because it's pretty much pretty analogous. It's it's pretty in, in you know contiguous with yours. Um, <clears throat> I need something, anything from Luke, and I think um, a lot of people's criticisms about the Last Jedi, what's coming up, is is due to poor planning, specifically on the character of Luke. We get absolutely nothing, not even a line. He just stands there looking pissed off, you know, at the end of the film. And then we get nothing. So, I mean, like, even if it's a scene or two, we get anything. And, and it's such a misuse of the character into the point where it's it's just almost like you get whiplash in The Last Jedi um, because you knew nothing about it. And it's just coming out of nowhere. And, you know, the thing is, J.J. Abrams has, like, a, a, a mad love for MacGuffin storytelling. So if he wants a MacGuffin here, you know, if he if he wants, you know, something like the map to Luke Skywalker's location... Instead, why is it not a message from Luke, right? That he's like send a message and he's setting a rendezvous time and place. It's like you know, if you want to, if you want to connect with me and and you know get an update on my search for for Ben, you need to meet me at this time on this planet. And so then you have you know a, a ticking a ticking clock too in the movie, right? You need to get this message to where it's supposed to be, and you need to decode it so you can actually connect with Luke before he leaves again. And that that would be much more interesting than you know Luke is hiding somewhere on on an island and is is you know brooding for thirty years or something. It's just it doesn't work for me. Quick question though, I, I will ask you this: Don't you think that they would be able to tell that that was Ky- uh, that Kylo was Ben based on the Force sensitivity? You know, in, in similar that Vader knew that Luke was his child just based on you know the whatever the Force whatever the the ancestry.com quick scan that that the force uh enables wouldn't it be also interesting if they would have magnetoed that situation and there's a reason for kylo to wear a helmet <laughs> yeah and, and, and that would you know what that would have been fascinating that would have been great so it blocks off it gives him a reason he doesn't have any any he doesn't have a scar or anything yet so like what is the point of the freaking helmet yeah, I mean, it, it's not just a tribute to Vader. It could be, like, made out of a special metal that, like, blocks the Force. They did this thing, <laughs> again, in the Expanded Universe, where they actually had uh, an animal that naturally uh, creates a bubble of, like, negative space in the Force because, it, you know, it's like a defense against predators that literally can hunt using the Force. And so piggybacking off of something like that, having a material that literally can, like, block the Force, and he has that sort of on his head to to block people from realizing who he is. Why not? And then we have, if we're wanting to echo, you know, stuff from the original trilogy, having a big reveal is always fun in any kind of movie and figuring out towards the end, oh my God, this Kylo Ren dude is Ben Solo. That would be a great big moment for this movie. And I think that, that, you know, I think they would have to do it in a way that wasn't an exact carbon copy of the Empire Strikes Back. But think about- absolutely. How how much like weight that carried to that film? You know, think back to when that happened. That was you know before I was born. But like this wasn't you know like the age of social media where like it was just common knowledge that that he was Luke's father and like just the shock value, um, you know. So we would probably only get you know a couple of minutes in the age of social media before people were spoiling it. But I think it would be a really cool thing. 
Yeah, totally. All right, Chris, your next uh, lightning round point. All right, so I merged, I think I merged one of mine previously, so this will be my last one. And and this is, you know, kind of, I'm kind of echoing something that we've talked about earlier, but you can't build a new big three if they are perpetually separated. It's one of the criticisms we had of the prequels. We're supposed to buy into this relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin, and they spend the greater parts of that trilogy completely separated. So there's no relationship building. I mean, for, for, for Pete's sake, Ray doesn't even meet Poe, I think, until the third film. So, like, how are they supposed to be this overarching thing? And yes, it's, you know, like pie in the sky to think that they're going to be together, you know, all the time. But, like, you're telling the story. You have that creative control. You should have at least some scenes where they're all three together. Like, that was one of the, the strengths of the original trilogy is for the for the better part of a lot of those films, of course you have Luke going off to Dagobah, but for, for large parts of a new hope and, and, you know, the other films, uh, like the three of them are together and they build this camaraderie, you know, and, and, and they have this complete gelling over the original trilogy that you don't have. And, and like, so none of these relationships mean anything except for Finn is kind of like this constant and, you know, another, you know, Feather in the Cap of Finn is a, is a great character that was underserved is because he has a great relationship with Poe. He has a fantastic relationship with Ray, but it's not like this continuous, like, you know, molding that it should be. And, and I think it's extremely limiting when you continually separate characters that are supposed to buy as, as being, you know, having a strong relationship with one another. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, the the whole notion of the original trilogy and the big three is they're brought together over the course of the first movie and then spend, you know, a huge chunk of the climax basically together. Then you get to Empire Strikes Back and they start the movie off together before they get separated out from each other. Then they reunite in the opening of Return of the Jedi are pulled back apart and then reunite again at the end of the movie. So there is in every movie at least one section where they're all together. And that does not happen in this in, in this trilogy, really, period. And that's a problem. All right, Dave. I think this is our final fix, but your last lightning round point. So what they decided to do structurally with the original Big Three in these movies was odd to me. Um, and that is, uh, the first movie is going to be Han Solo's. The second movie is going to be Luke Skywalker's. And the third movie is going to belong to Leia which created a situation where the original Big Three never share the screen a single time. And so when we're talking about that these movies are too nostalgia-heavy, that they reference the past too much, this is the one nostalgia thing that I can't believe they didn't pull the trigger on. This is the one that they should have done. This should have happened. I cannot understand why they would not put Luke, Han, and Leia together in at least one scene before they killed off Han Solo. Because as soon as you kill off one of the old big three, the rest of the trilogy will never be able to feature a scene that features the original three back together. So they immediately shot themselves in the foot at the end of The Force Awakens by never being able to give us that moment of the original big three together again. And I think that's a huge mistake in this trilogy. Yeah. And, and I will say that, that I, I don't, I don't enjoy it, but I think that the, 
the the death of Han Solo is incredibly emotionally impactful, and it it is a it is a good scene storytelling wise, development wise for Kylo Ren. So I I appreciate the vehicle that is for his character development and really that final nail in the coffin, if you will, towards his turn to the dark side. But I feel like that could have been placed somewhere else. Like have all of that, but place it somewhere else, whether it is later in this film or you do something else with Luke in this film to where they are together. Maybe you place this scene in The Last Jedi. And so I I, I really think that that is an, an integral scene to kind of push this story forward. But I, I definitely see and, and, you know, and maybe it is. You know, uh, I do enjoy the scene like in The Last Jedi to kind of get ahead of myself, but like where he's like Han is gone. And like, so not everything works out, you know, ideally the way you would want it to. And that's, that, you know, makes sense when you're, you're, you know, kind of on the run. It makes sense when you're dealing with dangerous missions and things like that. But it it would have been nice at least after 30 years of pushing the story forward to have something. So I, I agree with you there. And, and, and while I, I think that the the Han Solo death scene is integral for the moving forward of this particular storyline. I felt like it, you could transplant that somewhere else to where you still get that moment. Okay, I just did. So why don't we do this? <clears throat> they decode the message from Luke. They go and meet him. And it. why would you just send Rey? Right? I mean, Leia and Han have not seen him in a long time. So you get to the point where everything looks good. Han, Leia, and Rey, and Chewbacca all jump on the Millennium Falcon to go meet Luke. We have a short reunion, and then suddenly the First Order shows up. Kylo Ren shows up, makes short work of Han Solo, and everybody else has to flee. Boom. And you have a great cliffhanger ending that is more than what is Luke going to say after he gets his lightsaber. I think that's a much better ending to the film. I, I, I think that the, the ending to this film is just plain silly. Yeah, I can agree with that. And she's is she really going to be standing out there holding that lightsaber for that long? Okay, here's another lightning round fix. The whole end, the last scene, it's beautiful. And that is one of the things that I will say about this sequel trilogy. It's bleeping gorgeous. But it doesn't, it, it's just absolutely silly that we get this huge panoramic shot while gorgeous that she's just holding this out for like, a minute and a half of screen time. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a much more effective way to end. Um, you know, and similarly, the way the, the, the Empire Strikes Back did, um, you know, he loses his hand and, like, he's barely hanging on. So, like, it ends on this, like, real climactic thing. And then you have to wait until the next film comes out. Yeah, I would have preferred something like that, definitely. All right. Well, that's it from us when it comes to Star Wars The Force Awakens. How would you fix the movie? Hit us up on social media and let us know what you got, what we got right, what we got wrong, and what we could have done better to save the sequel trilogy. Next week, we'll take a short break from Star Wars to bring you full coverage of all the major announcements from E3. And then in two weeks, it's time to fix The Last Jedi. But first, after a short break, we'll bring you some nerd commendations. Stick around. And we're back. Time for the final segment of the Byword. That's right. Time for us to recommend some nerdy media to you, our beloved audience. Chris, what's good this week? 
So I know that I'm pretty late to the party, but the world of The Witcher has completely captivated me of late. I recently purchased The Witcher 3, The Wild Hunt Game of the Year Edition for under $10 on the Microsoft Digital Store, and it is quite possibly the most bang-for-buck video game investment that I've ever made. The standard edition alone, with its slew of primary and secondary missions, coupled with Witcher contracts to hunt down monsters and treasure hunts for upgraded gear, can easily provide the player with upwards of 200 plus hours of entertainment. Add to that the two additional expansion packs uh, slash DLCs, Hearts of Stone and Blood and Wine, and you'll be set for quite a while. Um, what I love about this game so much is that it blends the aspects that I adore about other video games in a really seamless manner. This game was released initially in 2015, and it is undeniable the influence that The Wild Hunt has had on the quasi-rebooted Assassin's Creed franchise, a series of games that I have uh, professed my love for on this show to the nth degree. Um, we also spent a great deal last week nerd commending two detective-centric pieces of nerd media in Nightcrawler and Cold Case. This game features an amazing feature where you have to investigate attacks, be they from men or monsters, use your Witcher detective skills, your Witcher senses, follow the blood trails or the musk trails, and solve the case. Think um, the Arkham series where you have to use your detective mode. This is very reminiscent of that. The game also features one of my new favorite relationships of all uh, in all of nerd media of Geralt and Cirilla Siri. Um, she's a fascinating character, um, and just the relationship this this you know quasi found family father daughter relationship that they've built and it's really explored in detail um, in, in this film is got me really hyped for season two of The Witcher and and to see those you know see that relationship play out on screen. The game is naturally infused with distinct horror vibes, thanks Nerd Nightmare, um, which blend beautifully with the world of fantasy, and it's a really unique mashup of Euro European mythology. Um, you have the Skellige, which are kind of analogous to like Norse, um, and then like even into the mythos of, of all this, it's just really kind of like a hodgepodge of you know European culture throughout the years. So it's really really cool. So The Witcher Three: The Wild Hunt. Uh, game of the Year edition, you can find that um, you know, on whatever your platform is on the digital store. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm currently, I finished the main storyline. I finished the first expansion pack onto the second one, going to, going around and, and doing some Witcher contracts and using my detective skills, but definitely check this one out. Um, and, and it's great prep as we wait for season two of The Witcher. Yeah, so I played this game a, a little right before my son came along, and I didn't get to sink, you know, all that many hours into it, uh, which is a shame because I really, really enjoyed the gameplay. Um, from what I'm played, the game is solid, and I love open world games, anyways. And man, I have such a love for the Witcher property; it's such a fantastic property. I absolutely love the Netflix Witcher series, but even more so, I love the actual Witcher short stories and novels. So I saw, uh, although I didn't play the game all that much, any chance to return to the world of The Witcher gets my stamp of approval. It's sort of an open secret that of all the nerdy things out there, fantasy as a genre has always eluded me a little bit. Lord of the Rings, for example, never captivated me at all. But The Witcher, this one has its hooks in me. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to revisit this game at some point, Chris. And, and what I love about this franchise, and particularly this game as a whole, is I was... In, I was immediately nervous about playing a game that has number three in its moniker right off 
So I was worried. I was like, am I going to be able to pick this up? But it's really like new player, new reader friendly, like all of this um, universe um, in a way that I don't think Tolkien, as much as I love Lord of the Rings, it is still daunting and it is not the easiest thing to break into. And I think that's something that is starkly different while the influences of, you know, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings franchise are present here. I think it is much more easily, you know, accessible, um, you know, and, and, you know, particularly in this game, um, they, they reference past events, but it's kind of like, well, that's another story for another time. And it does not hinder where you're going with this one. So um, it's very much like an anthology type series, like a Sherlock Holmes, if you will, where like you can pick up anywhere and, and just, you know, go running with it. So it's really, really fun and really easy to, to access. Yeah, I can agree with that. All right, Dave, what is your nerd commendation for this week? Well, it's scary. What can I say? I love me some horror. And there's a new horror comic from DC Comics Black Label. And it's the bomb, man. The book is called The Nice House on the Lake. And here's the official description from DC. Everyone who was invited to the house knows Walter. Well, they know him a little anyway. Some met him in childhood. Some met him months ago. And Walter's always been a little off. But after the hardest year of their lives, nobody was going to turn down Walter's invitation to an astonishingly beautiful house in the woods overlooking an enormous sylvan lake. It's beautiful, it's opulent, it's private. So a week of putting up with Walter's weird little schemes and nicknames in exchange for the vacation of a lifetime? Why not? Well, as it turns out, uh, the world is ending, and Walter has selected this small group to survive the end of the world in the nice house on the lake. How will they cope? How will they interact with each other? And who or what exactly is Walter? You know, I've been raving about uh, James uh, Tynion's Something is Killing the Children over at Boom Studios for uh, weeks now. And seeing him churn out another horror comic is an absolute thrill. The book builds a wonderful sense of dread while setting up an interesting, dynamic group of characters, as well as, you know, the enigmatic Walter. The art by his partner from Detective Comics, Alvaro Martinez Bueno, is absolutely pitch perfect for the story. There's something raw about the art that really works. It reminds me a little bit of art that you would have found in Vertigo books during the label's golden age. In short, one issue in, and I'm already hooked. This is shaping up to be another special horror book from Tinian, highly recommended for all fans of horror and, of course, fans of Boom Studios, Something is Killing the Children. Man, I'm telling you what, like James Tynan is one of those game changers right now in the world of comics. Like he he is firing on all cylinders based on on everything that I've heard. So this is something I need to check out. Something is killing the children is still on my to read list as well. Um, and the art, it, it the first when I at first glance it looks like like a horror tinged Russell Dodderman, who I absolutely adore uh, from his works on on the X books and and Thor. Um, so I'm definitely gonna have to check this bad baby out. Oh yeah. Highly recommended Chris. Well, that's it for another episode of the nerd Byword podcast. Thanks again for joining us on this crazy journey through the nerd multiverse. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to our pod. We pledge to bring you nerdy goodness every single week. You can find the Byword wherever podcasts can be found, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Audible, and of course, our very own website, nerdbyword.com. Also, hang out with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at nerdbyword, uh, individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. Uh, and as always, stay well and stay nerdy. 
The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Thank mm-hmm. you.